Chapter Twenty Eight of the Wife of the Secretary of State. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Velwest. The Wife of the Secretary of State by Ella Middleton Tybout. Chapter Twenty Eight. The downward path is very easy to travel. No effort is required for steady progress, and the way is so broad and free from obstacles that insensibly the pace increases until it is impossible to halt, for one must keep moving rapidly if he would not be trampled by the feet rushing on behind. Consequently, the traveller, flying breathlessly along, arrives before he realizes it in the quicksand awaiting him at the bottom of the hill struggles ineffectually to free himself, and looks with terrified eyes upon the ending of the road. Colonel St. John, seated beside the watchman's table in the Department of State, felt the closing of the quicksand, and knew he had reached the termination of the path. Heretofore he had successfully managed to elude justice whenever necessary, but this time he realized any effort would be futile, and had not courage to attempt it. It was very silent in the great building as he looked through the long corridor with its row of lights pendant from the ceiling, spaced, he thought, in such a manner as merely to accentuate the gloom. Here and there in the distance a lower light shone more brightly beside a watchman's table. He felt grateful for human companionship, but was not popular with his associates, and they rarely approached him for the desultory intercourse with which they enlivened their waking hours. Colonel St. John felt no inclination for sleep. He leaned his head against the wall and wondered idly whether he would be there another night, or whether he would repose at the police station, or he did not dwell on the last thought. By this time Count Vladimir would surely have opened the package of papers. He recalled his own sensations when he unfastened them and spread them out on the table in the octagon house. The envelope he had pounced upon with such avidity had been filled with blank papers, carefully folded and labeled. Colonel St. John remembered how he had procured them. He had not been on duty at the department that night, but had worked late at the Octagon House, and finally started for Jackson City through the old garden with the intention of making use of the gap in the wall. The night was cold, and Jackson City seemed a long distance away. So he had fortified himself by repeated applications of his lips to a square black bottle, kept carefully concealed from inquisitive eyes in his coat pocket. Just at the gap in the wall he had encountered a tall figure, which seemed to his fevered imagination strangely like Lyndhurst, and Lyndhurst was hunting him as a bloodhound tracks its prey. The figure paused just inside the wall, and he had instinctively stooped, and picked up a brick. He saw again the red light which had leaped to his eyes, and his stealthy advanced with raised arm. Colonel St. John, sick at heart in his watchman's chair, remembered the discovery that his victim was not Lyndhurst, and the slow dragging of the inanimate form across the garden and up the stairs. He was very heavy, and the old man had been exhausted upon reaching his room. He had put the mattress from his cot on the floor in the little inner room and laid the figure on it, applying such slight remedies as he had on hand, loosened his collar, 
and in doing so turned back his coat. In the inside pocket was a long envelope clearly labeled Roostchook. A day or so passed, and the man he had hit with a brick grew feverish and restless. He understood quite clearly what might happen if he died, then had come to the temptation to make use of the subterranean passage, also the memory of the octoroon safely walled up in the cellar. Another ghost, more or less, would not affect the reputation of the old house. Then he had felt the overwhelming desire to leave America. He was rich in the unexpected possession of his daughter, and independent as far as money was concerned. She would, he was convinced, pay well for silence, and he could quietly depart, leaving his work for Count Vladimir unfinished. Colonel St. John thought he understood the Russian. He had often before in his career seen a man in love with a woman, although he himself had never succumbed so completely as to sympathize with this situation. Then had come the suspicion that he was under surveillance, the frantic desire for immediate escape, and the attempt to pass off the blank papers on Count Vladimir. The bluff worked successfully, but he had not dared attempt to leave the city as he had planned. Sooner or later the Russian would open the package. Probably he had done so by this time, and then Colonel St. John moved restlessly. How still it was! He counted the black and white squares on the floor of the corridor as far as his eye could reach, and aimlessly switched on and off his light. He thought of Count Vladimir, and his hand clinched as he recalled the Russian's contemptuous attitude towards him and restless demands for his services. Well, he had worked for his freedom. In his room at the Octagon House were piles of completed tracings showing all the outlying defenses of the principal seaports of the country. Some of them had been difficult to procure, but he had finally succeeded in one way or another, and tomorrow he was to deliver them to his employer. The moments dragged slowly. Eleven-twelve. It was a long time yet before morning, many hours in which to speculate upon the events of tomorrow, and to arrange his plans for the day. Somewhere, out of sight, a watchman laughed, waking clamorous echoes and reverberations. Colonel St. John sprang to his feet and stood at bay, his back against the wall, then dropped weakly into his chair. "'I've gone to pieces,' he muttered dejectedly. "'All to pieces.' He thought suddenly of David Lay, ill, perhaps dying, on the floor of the Octagon House. Would it be murder in the first degree? What should he do with the body? Colonel St. John gasped and loosened his collar." An irresistible impulse led him to open the large doors and look out into the night. His post of duty had lately been changed from the second to the first floor, and he was stationed by the south entrance. The moon shone whitely, bathing Washington in its enchanted light, but he looked at it unmoved. He had often seen the moon before. The smoke of a train crossing the Potomac rose black against the horizon, and the old man caught his breath as he watched it fade away. There was a chance, a mere chance. He would try it. Just as he was, hatless and without an overcoat, he would make his way to Jackson City. There was money in the box in his room there, not much, perhaps, but it would do, and he would again evade the law. Once in a place of safety, Estelle should send him plenty more. 
he looked sharply about for the shadow which had darkened his pathway of late but observed only the shadows cast by the pillars of the portico upon which he stood evidently he was safe until morning at least with a hasty decisive motion colonel st john softly closed the door of the state department and started in the direction of the potomac it was very cold the night wind seemed to go through his bones at the curve of the ellipse he paused it was possible the type of cab known as Nighthawk might be prowling in the vicinity. Such a cab would drive him across the river and ask no questions en route, so he looked anxiously about. Behind him stood the Department of State, with its manifold official secrets. At his left was the White House, perhaps also containing private affairs of its own. Before him flowed the Potomac, and beyond was Jackson City, both, no doubt, covering many an unknown tragedy. At his right was the street leading to the Octagon House, a short square distant, with perhaps another mystery now inside its walls. Colonel St. John shivered from the cold within, as well as without, as he looked up the silent street. Was Lay living or dead? He had seemed to the old man very ill that night, involuntarily he moved a few steps to the right he wished to know what to expect a cloud drifted across the face of the moon and far in the distance he heard the whistle of an approaching train he must hurry if he would reach jackson city return to the railway station and leave washington by daylight cab sir cab it was one of the worst specimens of its kind but the old man did not look at it his eyes were fixed on the lamp-post marking the street at his right, and his hands were stretched out before him, as by one who walks in the dark. "'Cab, sir?' The driver waited a moment, then drove off, the sound of the retreating wheels gradually dying away in the distance, as Colonel St. John turned his back on the Potomac and hastened toward the Octagon House. He walked as one without volition of his own, with white, set face, an automatic movement. Along the quiet street he hurried, encountering no one, turned down the alley and reached the broken wall, where he paused. Here he had stood that other night, when the figure passed him. Here was the very brick he had used, lying apart from its fellows as though ostracized for its cowardly deed. Colonel St. John stooped and picked it up, but dropped it immediately, as though it burned his hand. A man might meet death through his indirect instrumentality, such an occurrence was not unknown in his career. It was, however, a different manner to be associated with the sordid details of the episode, and he recoiled from personal contact with the instrument employed. The house was dark and forbidding in comparison with the surrounding whiteness of the snow-covered garden and moonlit flooded sky. It stood grim and silent, an irresistible magnet drawing him steadily, unwillingly onward. Now his hand was on the latch of the back door. Now he was in the hall. Up! He must go up to find what? He groped his way towards the stairs, but halfway across the hall turned with a sudden revulsion of feeling. He was a fool, a fool! He must hurry, for the night was passing and Jackson City still unachieved. Colonel St. John, shaking with the penetrating cold of the old house and with that inner chill, put his hands over his ears to shut out he knew not what, and made an unsteady dash in the darkness for the front door. 
almost on the threshold he tripped and fell headlong and his face was buried in the mattress the redmond servants had thrust inside the door a few hours previous when lay was removed quivering in every nerve the old man lay motionless his heart thumping painfully and his body shrinking from the unknown which threatened from the surrounding darkness gradually however he grew calmer and passed his hands wonderingly over the mattress with a dim sense of recognition a rip in one side greeted him familiarly colonel st john sat upright and felt for his matches struck one and gazed at the prosaic ticking by its uncertain light with a smothered exclamation he made his way across the hall and mounted the stairs with the agility of a younger man holding tightly to the banister as though the contact of the unyielding wood imparted courage on the landing he paused the caretaker's door stood wide open and that other door was open also he could see the kerosene stove now burned low and burdening the air with its aroma for life in such stoves dies hard there was his table with its unfinished sketch he advanced reluctantly again obeying the mysterious force he had no power to withstand and stood before the inner door here was the chair with a pitcher of water and the few remedies he had ventured to apply evidently it had been pushed aside carelessly for the bottles had fallen over and the water was spilled upon the floor here was the corner where the mattress had rested empty now and uncommunicative indeed and here on the floor at his feet lay a man's glove dead he said slowly and removed by the authorities dead he picked up the glove and examined it in the failing light it was fresh and of good quality such a glove as a gentleman would wear at last he turned it inside out and bent to decipher the maker's name Colonel St. John was obliged to resort to his glasses, for the marking was indistinct, but very slowly he spelled it out letter by letter. It bore the stamp of a well-known English house. The old man's knees gave way, and he sank upon the floor beside the chair. "'Lindhurst!' he gasped. "'Lindhurst!' The stove sputtered and went out. Through a chink high up on the broken shutter, the moon sent a pale ray which reached the wall opposite softening its dingy covering into pearly whiteness and making a narrow path of light across the dusty floor it fell upon the broken chair and touched gently the gray head resting there among the bottles the hand grasping the glove was in the shadow and the face turned towards the light was lined and haggard but the eyes were closed and the exhausted faculties mercifully at rest for Colonel St. John had fainted. End of chapter 28